0: Hello, friends. Welcome to the 11th episode of the Schoolyard Podcast, brought to you by School Specialty. I'm your host, Nancy Chung, a fun loving teacher and content creator, also known as Fancy Nancy and Fifth on social media, and I'm thrilled that you're here. A special shout out to School Specialty, who offers essential educational supplies and complete learning environment solutions to help you transform more than classrooms. And now, School Specialty offers the world's leading multi-sensory experience brand, Snoozlin, plus a vast assortment of other proven products and a team of experts to tailor solutions to your unique needs. This is the Schoolyard Podcast, a podcast by educators for educators, where the magic of learning unfolds. Early childhood classrooms are like magical wonderlands where creativity and fun go hand in hand. These classrooms are not just about teaching ABCs and 123s, they are about igniting a child's imagination and nurturing their unique talents. By creating an environment that celebrates diversity and encourages self-expression, early childhood classrooms become a place where every child feels valued and empowered to explore their full potential. On today's episode, my guests, Cecilia Cruz, Jennifer Fernandez, and I will be diving deep to explore ways we can create the most dynamic early childhood classrooms. We'll be talking about setting up the most ideal physical environment, as well as adding the sensory component and the adaptive tools and materials. I'm so excited to have Cecilia back on the show. She was our guest for our episode on sensory spaces, and I got some really amazing ideas from her. I'm so excited to have two experts on the show today. Welcome to the schoolyard, Jennifer, and welcome back, Cecilia.
1: Thank you. Thank
0: you. Would you please tell us a little bit about yourself? Maybe you could start with Jennifer.
1: Sure. So I am Jennifer Fernandez. Um, I live just outside of Austin, Texas. I was an early childhood teacher for 20 plus years, particularly in kindergarten and pre-k, but some other things along the way. Uh, And then I left the classroom in 2013 and actually went to work for the city of San Antonio, Texas. And they Mm -hmm. did something uh, very interesting. The city government started four centers for four-year-olds to expand access to high quality early childhood education. And so I got to be in the professional learning department, did training and coaching of early childhood teachers. And then I joined school specialty in 2020. And so I work as their early childhood subject matter expert and really just get to be the voice of the early childhood teacher in our company and help mm-hmm. um, the different areas of our company understand early childhood education and make sure that we have the right things that teachers mm-hmm. are looking for. Okay, great.
2: How about you, Cecilia? I'm happy to be back chatting with you again, Nancy. So <laughs> I am, uh, I'm Cecilia Cruz. I'm the occupational therapist on staff at school specialty. My official title is the subject matter expert for our special needs division. Um, As I have been a school therapist for, gosh, many, many years, um, both worked inpatient acute care, outpatients, saw patients at home, worked in school districts, worked for Head Start. So you name it in pediatrics. And as a therapist, I've probably done it. Uh, I was hired by the company about 20 years ago to actually answer technical questions from customer care and the role has come because I was an end user of many of the things we have and the role just very much expanded from there. So I currently live outside of Greenville, South Carolina.
0: Wow, that's awesome. Jennifer and Cecilia, you guys are both experts uh, in what you do, uh, but you must have a favorite part of teaching early childhood. Can you share what your favorite part was?
1: Uh, Yeah, I can start. I think the favorite part for me was kind of the beginning to the end just that progression that you see and not that you know every teacher sees that right but i think early childhood it was just so much more pronounced because a lot of these children had never been to school before you know maybe couldn't even hold a pencil and then by the time they're leaving they're able to write their name uh that was one thing and then also because i was a bilingual teacher i think it was so cool to me to see these children coming in only speaking Spanish and we mm. spoke Spanish in the class all day long. But mm-hmm. then later on, I'd see them as high schoolers and they were fluent in English. You know, never mm-hmm. would have known they were the same person. Uh, so those are some kind of highlights I would say for me.
0: Well, wow. so you see how they started and then you see later on how they became, okay. Yep. How about you, Cecilia?
2: I would say, so my role as as the occupational therapist my greatest moments were both for the students and the teachers if i'm doing my job i should be making a teacher's job easier in terms of adaptations or things that maybe either the student or the teacher thought the child could not do and then when we figure out a way to modify that they can be successful so those are probably my favorite moments Mm,
0: great Now, Cecilia, could you please give us a little history of what inclusion's role has been in early childhood classrooms in the past and what direction it might be heading?
2: Ooh, that's a really good question. (laughs) And I've been in, uh, you know, a school therapist for many, many years, starting back in 1975, when I believe the public law was 94, 142. So uh, when we first started doing inclusion, Um, or having children attend school, I should say public school that had special needs. So um, I would say it shifted from them very much being in in special, either separate schools or separate classrooms until here we are coming into present day and we have IDEA, the Individuals with Disabilities Act. Mm -hmm. Um, Certainly um, part C is for uh, infants and toddlers, so that's zero to three, but then we transition nicely into part B where we're recognizing and incorporating from preschool on in a school system, how important it is to look at inclusive practices for children with special needs.
0: How about in what direction it might be heading in the future?
2: Oh yeah, that's um, yeah, part two of that question. I And um, we talked a little bit about this on my sensory spaces uh, chat, but again, so much of what we're incorporating with inclusion that as we figure out design things for the margins, we went over this with universal design uh, on the other talk, but when we design products for the margins, as in children with special needs, we often find that it has its application to all children as well, especially Mm -hmm. in early childhood, the sensory tools, the gross motor tools, some of the fine motor activities that we do. um, It's Much easier um, to now I would say to incorporate children with special needs into what we call their natural environment that is in the, you know, whether it's in a classroom, whether it's in a childcare program, wherever they are on the school campus that we find it's a lot easier to have those children be part Mm -hmm. of um, Mm -hmm. a gen ed uh, Mm -hmm. sort of experience.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, Jennifer, after many years as an early childhood teacher, then as a classroom coach and a mentor, what are some rules of thumb for an inclusive EC classroom?
1: Well, uh, one of the things I learned later in my career or heard was a quote, um, there's an approach in early childhood called Reggio Emilia. And I think it comes from that. And it talks about the environment being the third teacher. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of interesting because I always thought they meant third teacher in the sense that one of the teachers is the teacher and one of the teachers Mm -hmm. are the other students. Mm -hmm. And then the third teacher being the environment. I actually looked it up the other day for another purpose and found out that the three teachers they refer to are the teacher, the parents, and the classroom. And -hmm. not that that makes a big difference, but I want to be Mm -hmm. accurate in what I am Mm -hmm. saying. And I realize I have not been accurate for the last couple of years, but um, environment As the third teacher, this idea of the children can learn from the classroom and the way you set it up, and that all goes to being purposeful and intentional. Um, Mm -hmm. At my last job, they talked about if somebody walked in your classroom, you as the teacher should be able to know the why behind Behind everything everything. in your classroom. You know, why are you using this piece of furniture? Why do you have Mm -hmm. this material out um, mm-hmm. which is kind of a big daunting you know, thing to think of as a teacher. Can I explain everything in my classroom? Mm-hmm. But if you have been purposeful and intentional, you should be able to do that. And then I think the other thing is we just want to think about that environment for any child. Is it safe? Um, mm-hmm. And then is it a place that really fosters independence? I taught pre-K for a long time, pre-K four-year-olds, and you know they, they really want to be independent. They want to do things themselves, <laughs> which sometimes gets you in power struggles, um, mm-hmm. but you know try to stay out of those but do we set up the environment to help them be independent Ooh. and be able to do things for themselves and then is that environment also set up that they're able to easily interact with all the materials in the classroom and the people in the classroom so both the adults and then their peers
0: mm. I love that being purposeful intentional as well as safe and okay and Teaching them or guiding them to be independent, I feel like with social media these days, um, a lot of teachers want their space to look cute, and you know,
1: <laughs> Ooh, right? don't get me Very started.
0: <laughs> oh, I know, I know. So, um, you know, as I, as you were saying these things, I'm kind of looking around my fifth grade classroom. I'm like, okay, does this feature have a purpose? <laughs> what is the intention behind, you know, behind this? So I'm kind of, I'll be scoping out my room and thinking of things a little bit differently, asking those questions. So not just for the sake of, you know, is it aesthetically pleasing? Is it cute? Is this going to get me likes and views on social media? But I'm going to be thinking a lot more about the intention and the purpose behind that.
1: Well, and it's interesting you say that because it makes me think of one of the things I learned later in my career, too, was like no teacher desk in an early childhood classroom. And mm-hmm. I was that teacher that had the giant desk and everything in it because I always want to be prepared for everything. Mm-hmm. But thinking about the spaces for the students,
2: oh. you know,
1: not our stuff. And so mm-hmm. I think it kind of goes with that, too. That cute sometimes is more for us mm-hmm. than the students. So the kids I'm glad I got you thinking students. about it, Nancy.
0: <laughs> oh, that is so true. Cecilia, in addition to what Jennifer discussed, what are some of the specific physical modifications that could be made in an early childhood environment to make it more inclusive? That's a great question. I got a story (laughs) tied to
2: that one. So let's just go over briefly. So we know based on some of the issues that some children might have, if they have a a, a gross motor or, or cognitive or motor impairments, for example, they might need extra help. Um, in sitting up versus just being in a regular um, classroom chair. So sometimes we have to figure out alternate seating where they can still be included um, in the groups, but we've got to give them extra trunk, trunk support, sometimes extra foot support even. And that's my story that I just had a chat with an OT recently who they asked her to come in to help. Uh, it was a three or four-year-old that had uh, some issues and was not self-feeding yet. And so, oh, they everybody was looking and it's gonna be a sensory issue, you know, he's got so many sensory sensitivities. Well, when she looked at him, his feet were dangling in one of those sort of long tables where a lot of kids can sit and eat. So he didn't have any stability for his Mm -hmm. trunk. And so Mm -hmm. as soon as we put that foot box in place where his feet could touch, then boom, There now I have the Mm -hmm. trunk stability and the control that I can pick up the spoon and feed myself. So very dramatic in that uh, example. But Mm -hmm. um, we also have kids that might need to wiggle a little bit more. And obviously in early childhood, they should be allowed um, to wiggle, but sometimes we have to add a wiggle cushion or an Mm -hmm. opportunity to get on uh, therapy ball or something else so that they can get some movement because that's going to help their brain with focus and attention. So physical modifications like that uh, are mm-hmm. also uh, so important in, in setting that inclusive atmosphere.
0: I didn't even think about that, having that trunk support. Okay, Jennifer, is there anything more you want to add to the topic of health and safety in an early childhood space?
1: Well, I think we want to think about uh you know, visibility, that you can see children no matter where you are in the room is key. Sometimes we, and that kind of leads me to thinking of clutter. You know, Mm -hmm. early childhood teachers, we need everything. And Mm -hmm. that suddenly can become clutter in our classrooms and pile up on shelves. And then it impedes you from seeing children in certain areas of the room. So that's one thing to really think about. That whole decluttering though, too, has another piece. Um, So I do a lot of training on setting up early childhood Environments and I didn't do all this right when I was a teacher. I didn't know all of this. You <laughs> mm-hmm. know, now I have time to do the research and really dig in. And I've learned if I could go back and do it over again, and there's a lot of things I would do differently. But mm-hmm. talking about not just physical safety, but even emotional safety do children feel safe in the classroom? Mm-hmm. You know, if it's chaotic and disorderly, that is not a safe place where I want to be and where I'm going to be ready to learn. And so we want to think about you know, decluttering, even the color palettes that we use for so long, Mm -hmm. primary colors have been rainbow bright. That's the Mm -hmm. early childhood classroom. And I've really shifted. And that has to do with some of my later educational experiences to a more calming color palette, because it's Mm -hmm. not so overstimulating. It feels very natural in the environment. It makes it feel more home-like because that's another thing that, you know, I've read and research is that when we can make that classroom feel kind of like home, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, a very homey environment, that's also uh, calming. And it gives you that emotional safety of a place I want to go, I want to go to school, and I want to learn, because Mm -hmm. of how I feel in that room. Sometimes when I train on environment, there's an activity, and I stole it from somebody, it wasn't my idea. But think about that favorite place that you have, you know, where, and mine was, I was like this chair in my house with great lighting and a ceiling fan to keep me cool and jazz music (laughs) playing. And I could read a book, you know, where's that comfortable place. And that's kind of what you want to offer children when they come to school, really any age, not just early childhood, Mm -hmm. you know, they feel comfortable and they're ready to learn.
0: Right. Cause if they're not feeling emotionally safe, they're going to be acting up. (laughs) They're going to tell you in, you know, all of like all of the, you know, whether it's tantrums or uh, seeking negative attention or whatever it might be, you're going to find out that they're not feeling very emotionally safe and and Well, They say
1: it makes you go to your emotional part of your brain, which is not the thinking part of your brain.
0: Hmm. So,
1: you know, you can't think and learn if you're just wrapped up in either emotions or I'm hungry. I'm tired. Some of those mm-hmm. other survival kind of skills. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, there's mm-hmm. even brain research tied tied to that thinking. Mm.
0: Okay. Cecilia, can you add to this topic by speaking about what sensory modifications might be recommended for an early childhood environment?
2: Absolutely, but I just wanted to tag on a Jennifer's comment for a minute on visual clutter. I actually was able to kind of pull up. Um, and although we think especially in visual and peripherals are are positive that too much clutter there's actually been studies Um, that it can impair cognition. So I'm reading this from the research. Such environments cause the eye to dwell on a scene for a significantly longer period in an effort to make sense of it, of the chaos. So a task that requires substantial cognitive um, energy is going to detract from meaningful learning time. So a cluttered environment conflicts with the brain's natural tendency. That's the visual cortex and your frontal lobe. The executive mm-hmm. function part of your brain to perceive our surroundings as an organized whole so very very powerful and underrated and part of i know as an ot i have certainly gone into classrooms where that is and in, in well-meaning teachers wanting to put all the art up on the mm-hmm. wall and all the alphabet and Um, uh, have the bright colors like Jennifer talks about so just some of the modifications that's one of the things I often talk about how do we visually reduce the stimulation a second one that's a big one is lighting
0: and again Mm. I
2: so underestimated I I can see you and it looks like you are under fluorescent lights Nancy those are really challenging for uh, yeah for mm-hmm. all, all of us, but especially those with special needs that have sensitivity, mm-hmm. so overreactive mm-hmm. to touch, moving sights and sounds. Mm-hmm. Literally, one of my students, um, had, was we were trying to teach him to use an augmentative communication device. So that's where uh, we put in pictures in a machine, uh, not a machine, but a battery operated sort of uh speech generating device where he has to push a picture and it will say something for him because he's on the spectrum and nonverbal. Well, for weeks and weeks, we tried to get him to myself, the speech pathologist, his teacher wouldn't talk and wouldn't press it. And it's like, he's just randomly hitting. And I thought, I don't think he has the cognitive capability to understand what we're asking him to do. One day I walk into the classroom and I can see him squinting and blinking his eyes like a million miles an hour. I look at at his um, device. And the pictures are laminated under white pa- with white paper, and it's laminated. I'm mm-hmm. like, oh my gosh, maybe there's he's seeing glare on this and mm-hmm. he can't see. So we removed mm-hmm. the um, pictures and put it on a blue background, just a matte finish, no, um, we didn't gloss it, um, it, mm-hmm. and I got him a visor. And within weeks, he started using his communication device. So Whoa. lighting is a big issue for a lot of these kids. Mm-hmm. I just was on a tour of a school a couple of weeks ago. And, I, you know, those, again, are well-meaning maintenance guys that polish that floor so high so that it's really a high gloss, but under mm-hmm. the lights, that's a that mm-hmm. can be problematic for a lot of our kids. So looking at the overstimulation noise is mm-hmm. another one. We call mm-hmm. it auditory figure ground or auditory, you know, how do we hear the teacher give a command, when there's so much other stuff going on, computers, HVAC systems, shuffling papers, um, that some kids have trouble tuning that out to be able to hear what they're supposed to hear. So we have to look at sometimes acoustics on what we can be be done. And then mm-hmm. finally, um, as, uh, as we talked in length um, on the sensory spaces talk, finding um, spaces for children with that are going to give them deep touch pressure and spatial boundary definition for back to jennifer's point about emotionally feeling safe for many of our children they need that extra boundary input so they know where they are in space because their own body doesn't register it well enough yet so those are kids that fall off their chair they crash into other kids we sometimes really have to set up um, very clear boundaries that can give deep touch pressure to their body if possible, but if not, at least a visual cue of where they belong, you know, a spot marker or painter's tape on the floor mm-hmm. so that they, they know where they belong in space.
0: Okay, like having seat, uh, seat spots. Yes, it's called spots Uh Mm -hmm.
2: in center time. Yeah, we we call them spot markers, Uh, markers, educators have used them for years and years in in Mm. the gymnasiums and stuff. But Mm -hmm. yes, to somewhere where they know that that is their marker, where they're going to go, sit, whether it's Mm -hmm. color based or shape based, Um, that's really important.
0: I've had to do that with one of my students who spills out onto you know because we have with the flexible seating we got rid of the individual desks and we have these rolling tables and this kid just kind of spills out into like all of his things into his neighbor space so I took uh I took washi tape like a really cute you know colorful washi tape and kind of sectioned off his little area and said these are your boundaries. Don't don't cross this. And he thinks it's a game. So he's like, all right. And so he keeps everything in. And if uh, a neighbor has a paper sticking like, you know, into his area, he's like, he's in my space. <laughs> so I think he likes that. Like, so this is a great suggestion. Mm-hmm. Mm. Jennifer, do you have any final thoughts on early childhood inclusive environments? Anything to add on to that?
1: Um, I think that, you know, I, w- what I love is, Working with Cecilia, in our company, um, our each of us are in what's called a category, and our company mm-hmm. just categorizes our products in that way, but there's so much overlap, and I overlap with everybody because early childhood uses all the categories, but particularly, mm-hmm. I, Cecilia and I have been able to do a lot of work together because a lot of her products, as she talked about at the beginning, are just good for Um, young children. And and later in my career, I got smart and I started talking to the special education teachers and the occupational therapists in my school because I realized Mm -hmm. they had a lot of tips and tools that Mm -hmm. just worked really well for my students. So things like visuals. Um, I heard a presenter say one time, children listen with their eyes, and especially young children that can't read.
0: Those Mm -hmm. visual
1: cues are huge. Um, And there's lots of visuals that are used with special needs students, especially like Cecilia's talking about this one where the glare was a problem. But I think sometimes we forget how important visual cues are for young children as well and things. And then just hands-on, you know, doing, touching, feeling and using those senses. Young children are using their five senses to figure out what's going on in their world. So we've got to give them the, the materials and the tools that allow them to use those senses. Uh, she talked about movement movement is uh, you know young children have to move they want to move and so making sure that we're accommodating for that and then she talked about the gross and fine motor development which is often you know if you look at early childhood learning standards those are usually listed in there as things that we're working on as early childhood teachers and um, you know she has lots of things that maybe children use for special needs to strengthen both their gross and fine motor abilities, but a lot of those are appropriate just for any young child that's working on, on strengthening those things and improving those abilities.
0: I feel like Cecilia had something to add about the gross and fine motor modifications. Would you like to jump in? (laughs) No, I do. I'm sitting
2: here nodding my head. That's the beauty, too, of being early childhood educators, as this is all, as Jennifer said, it's really universal design. All these kids need all their senses to be able to learn, and it's so important in early uh, for growth and development. So just a few things, for examples, like for gross motor skills, I'm going to look at, okay, they're having time you know, out in the play area or um, sort of their activity time. Let's look at adapted trikes. Maybe a child can't pedal reciprocally. So can we use something where they could use their arms instead of their legs? Or can we have one with an extended handle where someone can help them push so that they start learning that motor movement? With fine motor skills, we're looking at tools that are going to help stabilize. Um, And I, I always, Jennifer and I have talked about this, things that are magnetic, like Uh, the magnetic blocks, um, there are, we call them bingo wands, where it's the little round chips and a metal holder, anything that's going to pull like that, because for children that have very poor eye-hand coordination and or have what we call ataxia, where they might have a little tremor or shake, those are tools that are going to make them successful in those skills, because you don't have to be exact with anything that's magnetic. Um, slant boards we use, that's an angled work surface. Sometimes we just take a, um, a um, binder, a three ring binder and turn it sideways so that it angles the surface. That's gonna reduce the glare and help put them in a better position to learn. So sometimes in early childhood, there's easels but for some children, an easel is too much against gravity. They don't have the strength up in their shoulders and their neck, yet that trunk stability we talked about, Mm -hmm. that that's difficult for them. It's important to do definitely to build those skills, but if they need additional help, we sometimes put them on a slant board. And then things like adapted scissors and adapted grips and tools like that, that can make them Mm -hmm. successful. I think are are just important to have uh, Jennifer and I are are speaking uh, next week, um, mm-hmm. it'll be over probably by the time this one airs, but we are mm-hmm. speaking at the early childhood, uh, the NACI conference on this very topic. And uh, one of the things that we're really talking about is yeah, looking at some of those kinds of tools and adaptations in the environment to help with that. So
0: I feel like there's such a need To learn more about all the all the things that you talked about today, I feel like there's such a need and demand for that. Um, I speak at multiple teaching conferences, and one of you know, like it's always the the early childhood sessions that are packed because I feel like with the upper elementary and middle school, there's a lot of information out there and there's a lot of resources out there, but I feel like for early childhood, especially with a lot of TKs being mandatory in many states, um, there's such a need. So I hope this episode is very popular. <laughs> yeah,
2: on our talk next week is mm-hmm. to think about having a kit, an adapted kit in your classroom. Um, a lot of these tools are easier to, to find and get nowadays, so that you're mm-hmm. kind of prepared to have sort of a little in in house um, kit that can be used for these kits that would have some of the things that we talked about today.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, we have a segment on our p- podcast called "Tag Your It" where our Uh, listeners write in with a question. Today's question comes from Megan L. And her question is, if you were to walk into an early childhood classroom, what is that one main thing you look for? Do you have any like do's and don'ts or like must haves or like no no's?
1: Yeah. No, no's are the first thing that come to mind. <laughs> no worksheets, <laughs> like, oh. no desks.
0: Oh, what was the first one? What was the first no, one again? No
1: worksheets. No oh. worksheets allowed is a session I do sometimes.
0: <laughs> Ooh, uh-huh.
1: and, and it's because early childhood, you know, the children are younger and learn differently. Uh, we talked about a little bit. It is, it has to be a lot more hands-on and sensory worksheets mm. don't work for them. So I didn't get to tell a story yet. This is a great place for me. I told you I'm a storyteller. <laughs> is I ran into a few years ago a gap. Well, she was one of my son's uh, kindergarten teachers and we were in an event and she was very upset because they had adopted uh, workbooks for kindergarten, Mm -hmm. science workbooks. And she said, one of the pages asked the children to circle everything that was smooth. And guess what they circled? Mm -hmm. They circled everything on the page because the page. Oh, because it's is smooth. Oh, oh wow. I was like, Aha. That is a perfect <laughs> example of why worksheets don't work. They're very literal, right? Wow. Mm-hmm. So, so just making it hands on. And yeah, so worksheets are a no no, desks are mm-hmm. a no no, tiny centers. You got to have room to let children play and explore and build big things with blocks mm-hmm. and plenty of materials. And then going back to that organization, I mean, just if you can have a, an organized classroom and, a, you know, kind of a, just this quiet, calming atmosphere that's mm-hmm. welcoming for children, I think that goes a long, long, long way.
0: <laughs> okay. How about you, Cecilia? Oh, yeah.
1: She
2: is way more the expert than me. But um, with my sensory detective background as an OT, you know, the first things I'm going to look for is, what does the environment look like from a sensory perspective, as we talked about the lights, the sounds, mm-hmm. uh, you know, where can they go for a quiet space? Where can they mm-hmm. get their wiggles out? So all those kinds of sensory tools, that's usually where my eye uh, mm-hmm. is drawn to figure out what could be done or what is good in those classrooms.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Has there been a time when you walked into a space and, and immediately thought, oh, no, please get rid of this? No? Yeah.
2: Cecilia? No, <laughs> oh, Jennifer. Oh. <laughs> well, i was. you You go first. I, well, I
1: recently <laughs> was at a school and and more I was sad because of, they were had, had the children sitting and doing packets and they were four mm-hmm. and it was it made me sad because then later they got out tubs of toys and it was much just much different uh, language and interactions mm-hmm. with the children and the teachers and I was like, okay, the proof is right in front of you, but I bet you don't see it (laughs) Mm -hmm. because, you know, they're used to doing things, things that way. So Um, and then it's, you know, it is hard to go into these classrooms where they're just it's so overstimulating because there's so much stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, when you live in there all year long as a teacher, you, you become blind to it. That's true. And, and so, but when you come in as an outsider, you think, oh my gosh, these poor kids. I mean, how overstimulating to be in here, you know, it's, it, I talk about like the calming colors and starting out neutral and natural, because that room's going to become busy no matter what it's going to fill up with kids and all their stuff. And then all your learning materials and there are things on the walls and, you know, it, it'll get colorful. Don't worry about that. But mm-hmm. if you kind of start out like as, as calm and neutral and, you know, clean as you can, Mm -hmm. then don't worry about it's not going to be a fun environment it will get there but Mm -hmm. I think we we just don't we don't think that way
0: right okay back to you Cecilia
1: oh yeah and mine I'm going to tag on Jennifer's
2: answer for me often it's the carpets that are so bright and busy and I'll tell you why that's an issue Um, so it was in a preschool class again that sensory overstimulation it's something called visual figure ground. That is, can you tell something, a foreground object that you need to focus on from a background and those hidden pictures come to mind, Um, you know, find the hidden uh, different pictures in an act, in a worksheet, Jennifer, sorry, just to give the example of what that is. But when we have kids that are doing, you know, center time and floor time, let's say something gets on that busy carpet and there's so much background pattern that they now can no longer find whatever the foreground object was that they're supposed to be working with, whether, you know, it's a block, it's the crayon, or so that gets lost in that sea of overstimulation. So I would be really mindful about uh, carpets in early childhood classroom. And I love Jennifer's about the neutrals and the blues and the greens, those kinds of palettes and more solid colors are much
0: easier for children to process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was an art education major, <laughs> and so we did a lot with color theory. And you know, I learned about a lot of colors that overstimulate or certain color combinations, either you know they might make you hungry or they might mm-hmm. uh, make you feel irritated. So I, I tend to stick with a lot of the cooler colors too. Um, but definitely I see a lot of teachers with like, I know we do like readers workshop, writer's workshop, and it's all about anchor papers. And some teachers will put, you know, they will wallpaper their rooms with anchor charts. And I feel like it's so overstimulating. And, you know, you have to ask yourself, are the students really using it to to yeah. learn? Is that does that become a distraction or is that a learning tool? And sometimes it's like time to get rid of some of the older ones. Right.
1: That's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They, they serve a purpose at one time, but when you're done or they're where it becomes wallpaper and nobody's Mm -hmm. noticing it anymore. Yeah. Then you got to, I've been in those rooms too.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, thank you so much. I love that we have, we're covering such a wide range of topics and grade levels and age groups too. A lot of things that we talked about today, I can absolutely apply it to my general ed classroom in Upper Elementary. And I'm sure the same thing with, you know, uh, middle school and high school teachers as well. So thank you for all the little nuggets of gold. Thank you, Jennifer and Cecilia. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you for joining us for the 11th episode of the Schoolyard Podcast. Remember to pack your curiosity and meet us back in the schoolyard for our next episode. Tag your it. Now it's your turn to write in with a question, which we will answer here on the Schoolyard podcast for our segment called Tag Your It. Tag us on Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, or Twitter at SchoolSpecialty. And hashtag schoolyard tag your it with a question that you want answered. One question will be selected per episode to be answered by our featured guest and myself. And if your question is chosen to be answered on the podcast, we'll send you a very special schoolyard podcast t shirt. Class dismissed.